The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The fundamentals are there for inflation, I think, for a while. We don't necessarily need free money and zero interest rates forever. Washington at this point doesn't want to add regulation to Bitcoin. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Let's look at the student loan debt, which is absolutely staggering. In my view, you can't spend enough on infrastructure. Given the size of fiscal stimulus we've already seen, this seems like a drop in the bucket. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where debate over infrastructure, jobs, and the COVID recovery is only intensifying. And as we learn more about the White House's strategy to pass a series of infrastructure bills with a shortage of workers and materials, we are joined today exclusively by a special guest, an official at the center of it all, and that would be the U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Bloomberg Sound On, and forgive me if I call you mayor. My good friend, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, I didn't realize you were doing the interview. I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> for, 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 for those listening, uh, Joe is, is, is a dear friend and, and somebody who, who covered Boston politics for a long time and did an amazing job at a couple of different stations. And I'm excited that you're at Bloomberg because you are, you are a truly great American and a great reporter. Oh my God, you make me blush now. I still have to ask you tough questions, Mr. Secretary, but thank you for <laughs> being work? here. You did a great job. At some point, you'll have to tell me how this works going home to Boston every weekend. But I want to start with the biggest question that business owners and other employers have been asking, and that's, where are the workers? And you know this debate. Some say unemployment benefits are keeping people at home. Others point to a number of other issues. Secretary, from fear of COVID to a lack of child care, what do you think it is? I think it's a little bit of all of that. Uh, I think that I think also that a lot of a lot of American workers, uh, when they when the pandemic hit, uh, they were in a certain industry, uh, and that industry or that business that they worked in is no longer there. Uh, so, and I think that, that that's part of it as well. Uh, in the last four months, we've seen uh, an increase of jobs uh, growth in this country by four, 2.1 million jobs. Uh, next Friday, obviously, is another big day in America. We'll get a new jobs report to see how we're doing. But pres- the president's plan, economic plan, is working uh, moving forward. I think more people getting vaccinated is important as well. Uh, and, and at the beginning of the pandemic, um, you know, obviously, uh, it seemed like we, we literally shut things down overnight, which it was over a period of about three days. And restarting and getting people back to work isn't just flipping a switch and getting people back to work. But we are seeing people go back to work in big numbers, about 500,000 per month. I'm sure you hate hearing the term jobless recovery. We heard that a lot in, in 2008. And I see now that more than half the states, mostly states with Republican governors, are planning to drop the weekly supplement, the $300 weekly supplement in unemployment benefits before it's set to expire in September. Do you worry about the impact of that or will that, in fact, bring people back to work? No, I do worry about the impact of that. I was just in Indiana uh, yesterday and and a lot of people uh, when I was talking to people on the ground there 
what we're explaining, the concern that with people that, that still needed the unemployment benefit. I just hope as, as governors and states uh, get rid of the $300 or, or refuse the $300, that the, the impact on workers isn't too great. The impact on people isn't too much uh, not to be able to pay their bills and keep a roof over their head. We learned today, Secretary, uh, from the White House that President Biden is going to be speaking about jobs following the report, the monthly report that comes out next Friday. They've been so closely watched over the last year by the markets. I wonder uh, if if there's any reason for that. Is it going to be good news? Is that why the president's getting ahead of it? I think the president's been talking uh, generally after almost every job report. He has had a, had a press conference and, and announced uh, either a, di- a different uh, you know, stimulus plan to keep continue the economy recovering, or or he's always commented on it. He did it last month as well. So I think I think it's important. The American people want to hear from the president, and I think it's important for them to hear after after a, a day like that happens, just to know where we're headed with with uh, what the plans are to continue the the recovery. We're joined by Labor Secretary Marty Walsh here on Bloomberg Radio today. A story by Bloomberg Business Week caught my attention. Secretary, it says nine million Americans did not receive unemployment benefits in the course of the last year, even a little bit more than that. Uh, they did a lot of work following a review of more than a year's worth of labor data. Is that because does that number ring true to you? Is that because so many people all tried to sign up at the same time or is there more to this? Well, I think there's a lot of different reasons. And that's why when the president put forth his American um, rescue plan. Uh, we he made a two billion dollar investment there for us to really look at how do we make sure that the unemployment system is working for everyone. Uh, and we, we're going, we're in the process now of looking at and distributing that money, uh, looking at reforming that system to, to so it works for everybody. Uh, certainly, we, we learned a lot during the, the pandemic uh, when 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 literally tens of millions of Americans were out of work literally overnight, uh, and, and there was lots of different challenges and reasons for that. Uh, partly were antiquated systems, partly where states weren't prepared for it. Uh, there's a whole bunch of reasons. So uh, we're, we're going to be watching look, moving forward on that. And in more recent months, some of the some of the concern was around some of the fraud that happened during the election, uh, not the election, excuse me, the uh, unemployment insurance to make sure that uh, the money that that's allocated for people for their benefit, that it gets to people for their benefit. Yeah. Well, I guess this actually could be a lower number. Uh, than than what is reality, because a couple of states were not part of our survey. They, all the data is not available. Are you pointing to the need then for a better system to calibrate this, to track this, uh, the, those who are working and those who are not in the Labor Department? Yeah, we're going to need a better system anyway, I think, as we move forward here on collecting data when it comes to unemployment insurance, uh, because that's one of the frustrations I think that's been, been that uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it a frustration, but one of the concerns, I guess, that the Department of Labor has had of making sure that we have the most accurate data so we can do the right assessments there and make sure that uh, the money that's been allocated throughout the com- throughout the states uh, that gets the people that, that's supposed to get the people. Yeah. Got to talk about infrastructure. You mentioned it uh, already, and you're part of the team, Secretary, uh, tasked with selling this, with with making this reality. There was a, a big breakthrough announced yesterday uh, with this bipartisan deal, and of course, we've got this reconciliation happening potentially at the same time. Your department, though, has the authority to regulate and enforce how public works projects are carried out, and I'm assuming we're about to have a lot of them. Are existing rules sufficient to be sure? that construction wage standards are applied on future projects, or do you need to update them as secretary? Well, I think a lot of it is going to be incorporated in the, in the piece of legislation that's filed. You know, the president spoke yesterday 
of good paying jobs, good, uh, good paying union jobs uh, that, that will be available for people. Uh, also, making sure that we create uh, opportunities for equity, that these jobs are easy, accessible for all people, uh, not just certain people. And I think that's going to be an important aspect of what the final version is. What happens now is this uh, compromise uh, framework, bipartisan framework that happened yesterday will, will turn into a piece of legislation. It will be filed. It'll go through a process. Uh, and, and then it will be voted on by the United States Senate, United States Congress, and then the president obviously will, will sign, the, sign the law. Uh, so, so there's still a bit of a way to go. But yesterday was a, a good – I thought it was a good day for the American people that, that the president showed that we definitely can, can collectively work together uh, to, to get something on the table. And what, what, was, what was talked about yesterday was a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Can you bring us into the conversation a little bit here, the process – Secretary, obviously you have a great relationship with Joe Biden predating this administration, but I wonder, are there work groups being created? Is there a labor group? Is is Secretary Buttigieg leading a transportation group? How do you get all the heads together and and create this, what's going to be a massive piece of legislation? Well, what the president did right in the beginning when he, when he, when he announced his American Jobs Plan, he, he tasked uh, five secretaries to, to really go out and, and talk about it primarily, and other, other, other cabinet members did as well. Myself, uh, Secretary Buttigieg, Secretary Granholm, uh, Secretary Raimondo, Secretary Fudge, um, to make sure that the five of us uh, were out there talking about this and and trying to get this passed. Now what will happen is people, uh, particularly around transportation, probably one and uh, transportation energy are two of the biggest parts of this as far as roads and and, and public transportation, electric vehicles, electric buses, uh, broadband. So we'll all be having input into what should be in the final piece legislation, as well as working with members of the members of uh, both the Democrats, Republicans in Congress and the Senate. So uh, th- there'll be many, many conversations about what the language should look like, how we move forward here. But yesterday, yesterday, I thought was a very big step for the president did a really amazing job. A lot of it was the president. He'll give us credit and give us all credit for being part of it. But quite honestly, I have to give most of the credit, if not all the credit to the president of the United States of America. Who, who stayed at this and was very consistent in the sense of wanting to get something bipartisan done. Secretary Walsh, with regard to reconciliation, uh, you're a longtime union man. You're known in Boston and have been for a long time as a union leader and someone from the building trades specifically. Will you and the administration push to include provisions of the PRO Act, the, the pro-labor, pro-act in the broader legislation? I still think it's a little too early. There'll be everything. Everything will be on the table, and obviously, uh, we're going to be moving forward. I'm going to be pushing to see what 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 aspects of the pro acts we could get into the bill, uh, and and we'll see. I think just like this this first, uh, I guess this first piece of 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 the American Jobs Plan that the president was able to negotiate, uh, we're going to begin these conversations. Not begin. We're going to continue these conversations on as we move forward. So there's lots of different pieces that people would like to see. In a reconciliation, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll take this a step at a time, a day at a time, and continue down this road. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar, and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You've been here for a couple of months, uh, Secretary. You got down here a little earlier than I did from Boston to Washington. 
I recall the lunch that you had uh, somewhat famously, uh, at least in Boston, at the No Name Restaurant uh, with you and then, I believe, Vice President Joe Biden. You guys have known each other for a long time, and you've talked about a lot of stuff. I wonder if you've had time to spend with him since you've been here. Do you have regular meetings? Do you guys have a chance to catch up? I did. I've spent a little time with the president. Obviously, his schedule's a lot busier than it was that day. I bet. Uh, but 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 uh, you know he he he's built a really amazing team around him, uh, and I've had to, I've had the opportunity to spend some some nice quiet time. Uh, talking to the president and, and quite honestly talking to the vice president. I was with the vice president in Pittsburgh on Monday uh, and, you know, just, just talking about how we continue to move America forward. And it's, it's really refreshing to have, have uh, two people so dedicated uh, to, to, to American people. So it's great to work with them both. And, and, and it's great to, I mean, obviously Joe Biden's a, a, a dear, dear friend uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm honored to work with him every day. This is a pro-union administration, not unlike your own when you were running the city of Boston. Will that be codified in language in this infrastructure bill? I think some of it might be. And I think the one thing that people need to understand that, uh, you know, a lot of people have different emotions. And, and you just mentioned the city of Boston. You know, I, I, I am the same person that was mayor of the city of Boston. Uh, and I was a, a pro-worker, uh, pro-labor mayor. Uh, and, and we were able to do some amazing things uh, financially in the city, AAA bond rating, seven consecutive years, able to approve, uh, you know, $48 billion worth of development, fully fund uh, on a way to fully fund our pension system. And there's no reason why we can't collectively work together, uh, business and labor, as we move forward here. And and Secretary Raimondo and myself uh, and Secretary Cardona, quite honestly, in education have made a commitment to continue to work together to create job opportunities because without business you don't have you can't have labor without education and training you can't have a good trained workforce so we're going to collectively work together as we move forward yeah u.s labor secretary marty walsh many thanks for joining us today on bloomberg sound on it's great to hear your voice again let's do it in person next time and for all future guests you now know the best way to approach me when you join us here on the air This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. As we follow the bouncing ball on infrastructure, could take a lot of directions as we were just discussing with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Our exclusive conversation today on Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, where we turn to White House correspondent Josh Wingrove, who has also had quite a week. Josh, it's great to have you with us. Hey, the first you question, me. you were in the briefing room, uh, the first question to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki this day after the bipartisan deal was released was, is the infrastructure agreement already stuck in a pothole? This is what it sounded like coming out of that question. <laughs> you worked hard on that. No, I, I like it. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, in our view. Uh, the president uh, is continuing to, as I said, as he said yesterday, there's work ahead. There's no question about that. But yesterday was a significant moment when you saw Democrats and Republicans and the president of the United States stand outside together and say, we've come to agreement to, pa- to work for- toward passing a historic investment in infrastructure. And of course, that's what the press secretary is supposed to say, uh, Josh. But how difficult is this going to be? The first question the president got coming home from North Carolina yesterday was, is infrastructure DOA? This is not the conversation they wanted to be having right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I hate to disappoint you that our colleague Jen Epstein was in the chair today, not me, but they're, they're still going here at the White House. So I, I, you're stuck with me tonight on the phone. But <laughs> the, the, the We're landscape honored to right have now you. has, yeah, well, as always, the, the landscape right now, there's a bit of gaslighting going on on either side, frankly. Like Biden has always signaled that reconciliation was on the table in some form. Uh, but uh, at the same time, his sort of immediate veto threat was farther and sort of sharper than he'd been in the past. The Republicans are both right that he uh, kind of hit them with a hammer right out of the gate, but uh, I, I think it's not right to say that this this is like totally out of left field. So where does that leave us? The question is, but can they get 60 votes on an infrastructure package, and can they get enough votes for the reconciliation package that they want to do? If they move too, too much towards infra and to, towards compromise there, they could lose both on one end and vice versa. So it, the, think of the, you know, they're trying to like, you know, play Jenga on kind of a moving train, right? Like there's two challenges <laughs> going on here. Where, and, it, you know, trying to land both of these at the same time as the president wants to do is just like a Herculean legislative task. Uh, you yeah. know, this, this thing is very much not baked yet. Well, I don't, is Jenga on a train a strategy? And I ask you that after talking with <laughs> Secretary Walsh. And it's clear that this is still taking form. We asked about provisions of the PRO Act uh, potentially going into the broader legislation, maybe authority to regulate how public works projects are carried out. I'll throw in another cliche. Are they building the plane in flight or what? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Now, you know, I'm, my wife tells me we're too, I'm too cynical on these kinds of things. So <laughs> let, let me maybe take a more generous interpretation. We had the last bill that, that, Biden pushed through with only Democrat votes that rained a lot of money down on a lot of parts of the country. Uh, Republicans couldn't really do what a lot of members of Congress like to do, which is show up, you know, at a ribbon cutting ceremony and say, congratulations, this money came from the sky and I'm who you have to thank for it. Uh, They couldn't do that because they didn't vote for it, or at least they shouldn't have done that. Some of them tried to have it both ways. So there's a world, I suppose, where uh, enough Republicans want to be able to do that, that they could vote for this package. But I think that's a really generous. I think I'm trying stretching too hard uh, to, to, to say that. And on the flip side, you know, Biden might the cynics in the Biden administration might think, well, heck, we're going to have this to be good either way. You know, if they balk, we'll be able to push through stuff and reconciliation and just move on anyway. The two wobbly votes, those centrist senators uh Kristen Cinema and uh, and Joe Manchin, you know, if Republicans walk away from the table, they'll have you know they'll they'll be on good footing to say, well, hey, we tried. So yeah. you know, I think there still are a lot of avenues here. We just absolutely don't know where it's going to go. And they're getting cute with this math too. I want to add. Remember, it's that 1.2 million figure that they're talking about. That is over eight years and includes stuff that's going to happen already. Yes, the new money is something in the 579 billion range. That's right. And we've been consistent with that at Bloomberg. You'll see a lot of different headlines that are in the 1.2 trillion range. As we look across the next week or two, uh, though, how how does this work with the calendar? We've got the 4th of July coming up. We've got an August recess coming up. So will it be infrastructure summer and fall? Yeah, I think that there's a world. I was talking to an official yesterday. They said there's a world that this could happen in uh, in August, uh, ideally, you know, if they could land this in August, but they said probably more likely it slides to September. I certainly think that that is more likely. Um, and again, I think we're really up in the air. You know, the, the, the so-called gang of senators that negotiated this, we were watching to see whether any Republicans would sort of walk away. That hasn't happened yet. But Mitch McConnell 
and, and you know, other figures in the Republican Party are sort of pressuring them, saying they feel carpetbagged. They feel like Biden has, you know, you know, paraded them in front of the camera, said we got a bipartisan deal. Oh. And oh, by the way, I'm only going to sign it when we, I get my Democratic package on its own as well. We've got a lot to figure out. Please uh, say happy <laughs> Friday uh, to your wife and explain that skeptics become journalists. It's great to have you, as always. White <laughs> yeah, House she's, correspondent she's Josh. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. She knows this. Josh had quite a week, did a lot of great reporting. Our whole White House team did. And some long days, and looks like we have some long ones coming. Demand for energy is rising as the economy recovers from COVID. We hear about it all the time. Gassing up cars, filling up airplanes to go somewhere this summer. Low supplies have been part of the story. With crude oil futures today, as you just heard, rising above $74 a barrel in New York. Some betting the Biden administration now is going to send prices even higher. We're joined to talk about it all with Bloomberg Washington correspondent Anne-Marie Horder. It's great to see you. Welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks, Joe. It's great to have you in Washington as well. All roads lead to infrastructure, right? Even energy. I want to ask you about this in an exclusive interview today on Bloomberg Surveillance. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm talked about a plan to sell parts of the nation's strategic petroleum reserve to help pay for this plan. She was asked about it on surveillance. It is really, it'll be a limited sale to be able to meet the goal, which is to, I mean, the president's goal was he did not want any of these pay-fors, as you know, to raise taxes on those earning over, uh, under 400000 He didn't want to see uh, a tax on electric vehicles or a gas tax. So this is one of, of several elements that were used as a pay-for. And again, it's a limited sale. Okay, so... I thought the Strategic Petroleum Reserve was there uh, for, for times of emergency, and I guess we're using this to raise money now. Yeah, and it's not the first time it's been done. And Granholm did say that. Secretary Granholm did mention it has been used as a piggy bank in the past, sell some crude, fund other things like medical research, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But as you mentioned, it's for emergency funds. It started in the 70s, uh, 1975 it started. This was, of course, after the Arab oil embargo. What they want to do is try to get some billions of dollars. Look where the price is now. We have uh, Brent, I think, above $76 a barrel. This would be yeah. the time to start selling. But what's interesting, Joe, is that that Bloomberg News, uh, Jennifer Dalu, has an amazing piece out actually outlining that if the Democrats had taken this push that the Trump administration actually wanted when prices were negative and very, very low last year during the pandemic, which is to fill up their strategic petroleum reserve to help the fossil fuel industry, then they could have made their estimates that Bloomberg has $6 billion if they were to sell what they wanted to buy last year today. So very interesting uh, oil diplomacy happening right now in the United States. Boy, that is for sure. Now add the rest of what we're talking about here, the recovery, right? Demand is high. We learned this week uh, in two separate reports that inventories remain at multi-year lows, and then you add electric vehicles. And this is where it gets interesting, because I'm going to ask you about an OPEC meeting next week as well. But the demand for EVs, and as Granholm described this morning, uh, they're going to ask for even more money in reconciliation to make EVs more affordable to people. But it takes fossil fuels to make electric vehicles. 
And as Ford gears up and GM and the government puts more incentives out there, will that in itself send oil prices higher? It's a it's a good question. I I think you know their push for fossil fuels and infrastructure uses all kinds of commodities, right? And all of that is using fossil fuels, charging stations, right. etc. It will also make the fact that those cars that are still using fossil fuels, uh, potentially, as more companies are not going to want to invest as much money, and you see this in Europe, especially less so with the U.S. energy companies, they're not going to invest as much in oil and gas and drilling. They want to invest in the shiny new things, which is the energy transition. That in itself will also drive up the price of oil because there will be less infrastructure into this fossil fuel industry. So there's only going to be only a few companies, and I'm talking years down the road, but you have to think about that. Only a few companies in a few places that are going to invest in that industry, and that will in itself make the prices go higher. And what you're seeing right now in the market, you have Trafigura, a top trading oil company. You have Bank of America. All of them are saying, we could see $100 a barrel by the end of this year. So triple wow. digits on Brent. Well, that's what a lot of people are betting on here. And as, of course, we hear from investors of the investment community as well, is that Funds are underinvested in energy, and if there's a big FOMO move here, that could be really something. But tell me about the OPEC uh, story next week. Are, are there good odds for more pumping to increase supplies, to stabilize, or even lower prices? Speaking of FOMO, it'll be the first OPEC meeting. Huh. I'm not attending in a while, wow. as I used to cover OPEC um, very, very closely. But it is the main energy event of next week, and this is when production policy will be decided by this group. Um, There's already wrangling going on going into the meeting. You have Russia, which pretty much always makes a play, Joe, to pump more. That's what they want to do, especially when you have these prices. I mean, Vladimir Putin has said a number of times Russia can balance its books at $60, even $40 a barrel. Then you have some of the Gulfs, like Saudi, which need a much higher prices, and they love this. But what is interesting is that even though Prince Abdulaziz, the Saudi oil minister, has said recently he sees himself as an individual who should help tame inflation. Prices are going higher. That's obviously uh, inflationary pressure. At the same time, he's a very cautious person, and he's very worried about another wave. So what market watchers are expecting in this very hot market at the moment, and as demand is increasing, is that they will have to put some supplies back in the market, but they're not going to go full on in when potentially, like India's calling for and the IAEA is calling for. Fascinating stuff here. Are there members, before you leave us, are there OPEC members that are reluctant to pump more and just want to see prices rise. There's one story that is overshadowing this OPEC Plus meeting, and that's the other meeting that's happening in Vienna, where OPEC is also headquarters, and that is the Iranian that is the Iranian negotiations regarding the nuclear deal. If Iran comes back on the market and lift oil sanctions from the United States, we could see potentially ramping up 1.4 million barrels a day. OPEC's not want to boost supply if Iran is set to come back online. Iran, the wild card again. Yes. When are we going to find out next week? What day is the meeting? Um, OPEC meeting is on the 1st. We're still waiting okay. to find out when the Iranian and the U.S. diplomats will meet again. Oh, we're going to be watching prices between now and then. Is the, are, does Wall Street think, does the, does the futures market believe that $100 a barrel is realistic, or are those outlying bets? No, Wall Street believes that. Trafigura, one of the top oil traders, certainly believes that. And you're seeing that across all commodities. It's a super cycle, as some would say. A super cycle. With Bloomberg's Washington correspondent, Anne-Marie Horder, and we'll let you put the oil patch down now and start covering Congress again. I'll see you on Pennsylvania Avenue. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on
on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us live from Washington. The report is out, a government report on UFOs out a short time ago. And defense and intelligence analysts say they don't have enough information, not enough data to determine the nature of these mysterious flying objects that military pilots have been looking at and recording for years. We're going to get into this straight ahead. Bloomberg Sound On is brought to you by SEI. Crises emphasize character and partnership. One mission, one community, SEI. Go to SEI.com slash IMS. We're joined to talk about this in just a moment by Billy House, Bloomberg congressional reporter. The report, as I mentioned, came out just in the last hour, submitted to Congress, released to the public. Billy, welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Billy House, are you with us? Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm sorry. Not at all. Well, you're reading a report on UFOs for crying out loud, and this is no joke. Um, Interestingly, a lot of us have seen these videos taken by Mm -hmm. military pilots. There was uh, a a series of reports on this recently. This was supposed to be the big one, Billy. it, It leaves a lot of information. They say they don't have enough data to draw conclusions. Right. Uh, the report came out, it, it, uh, so so to speak, landed at Capitol Hill this afternoon from the office uh, as a, a director of national intelligence. It, it's both fascinating and disappointing at the same time. And it basically says that uh, uh, it doesn't mention the word alien or extraterrestrial, but it does say there are five or so categories of unexplained aerial phenomena, uh, everything from clutter birds uh, to a catch-all uh, category. Uh, that maybe includes aliens, but they don't say so in the report. <laughs> okay. Uh, do they make any suggestion as to why we don't know what these things are? Uh, they say that they've only recently standardized the reporting. Okay. So uh, what they're telling us is that uh, decades from the uh, Cold War era in the 1940s in Roswell don't count really any as they – uh, now say they rely on more sophisticated uh, equipment and standardized reporting uh, only to to you know the last decade or so, and that um, from there they haven't been able to conclusively make any decisions on what it is these things are, except for that they st- uh, they cross five categories. So you get a sense that there's a lot in this nine-page report over decades of science that's not really in there. Right. Billy House, Bloomberg Congressional Reporter. Thanks for the initial read on this. A statement from the Pentagon. UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. Let's bring in Nicholas Sunsef as part of this conversation, professor and director of the astronomy program at Texas A&M. Professor, it's great to have you on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. Do you ever think you'd see this day? 
Mm, yes and no. I mean, UFOs have been around for a long time, so it's not, not a new subject. But the fact that a report is coming out and it's got the imprimatur of the federal government, that's, that's pretty exciting. So what should this tell us? The government is providing this report. Have government officials confirmed the fact that UFOs are real? Depends on what you mean by real. Certainly, there are lots of unidentified flying objects. Yeah. I mean, if you can't identify it, it's, it's a UFO by definition. Well, I should reframe um, the question then. Are UFOs coming from another world? That's well. That's a hard question to answer. It seems unlikely to me. But let, let me phrase it in a different way. For sure. for a long time, UFOs have been been reported, and there are lots of videos of them and pictures, and they're always just barely at the edge of resolution. You can't quite see what's there. It's kind of fuzzy, mm-hmm. and that hasn't changed over time very much. But what has changed with these videos and this information coming out is there's now actual telemetry that is taken by the cameras that pilots are using. So with the telemetry and a bunch of smart engineers, one could sit down and actually begin to measure things about these unidentified objects, which in the past we just had to rely on kind of shaky video camera work, which really doesn't tell us anything. So there's now information that scientists and engineers can look at and and conclude some things about what these things are. But they still are unknown. We, we don't know what they are. The Pentagon is using uh, the term unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. Is that the same as UFO? Yeah, I think they're just trying to get away from kind of the, the UFO craziness. There's There are lots and lots of people that are fascinated by this subject, and some of them are very speculative in what they're claiming. When you hear the tape of these Navy pilots looking at this stuff, essentially defying the laws of physics, a professor, someone like yourself who's been in this field for a long time, must wonder, what do you think it is? Yeah, but I've seen weird things in the sky that no one else could identify, but later on I identified. You know, I, I once saw a string in the sky that was about, you know, you hold out your hand, it was maybe twice the size of your fist, and it was moving from west to east, slowly rotating. I look up there and I'm like, what the heck is that? But then I went online and I found out that it was a experiment that was done where they, they took a mylar uh, wire and stretched it out for about a kilometer. They were trying to, to create an electrical current across the wire. But had I not read that, I would have had no idea what, what a string is moving in the sky. But there was an explanation, and it was I found that one out. The problem is with UFOs, you're thrown so many things to try to explain. And if you can explain one thing, then someone comes along and says, well, what about this? And it never ends. It's always, what about this? The difference now is that there's actual telemetry on some of these observations. But as far as I can tell, no one has really carefully analyzed it in a neutral way. There are a bunch of good websites which are trying to take the numbers that appear in the videos and turn them into into actual distances and speeds and so forth. And that's what we need. We just need a couple of engineers to sit down with all all the data that's possible to kind of tell us what what we know and what's uncertain about these measurements. We haven't seen that yet. Officials have made clear that their ability uh, to draw conclusions is limited by what they know. But, Professor, we also know that there is classified information that will not be part of this uh, public portion of the report. So we're just going to keep going on guessing, aren't we? Oh, I think so, yes. Um, I also just want to bring up something else that has been not said in anything in, in any of the, the articles. is that The U.S. has also looked into this from rumors that I've heard a project called JASON, J-A-S-O-N, which is a group of scientists and engineers that is called together, used to be called together by the RAND Corporation, to look at unusual phenomena or, or 
things that could be of interest technologically, and all those Jasons don't tell us what they're, they're working on. I certainly know people in the, the group of Jasons, and whatever they're concluding for the U.S. government, which unfortunately is secret, that is something that I would I would trust. But I don't know what I don't know what Jasons have come up with yet. Well, that's interesting because as long as there's something classified, this conversation is going to go on, and there'll be a cottage industry wrapped around it. Maybe this report will end up in a movie. Maybe, but still, the number one fact everyone has to remember is that we are actively searching for signs of life, which is a different question than signs of intelligent life. But both of them we're searching for, and so far we have no evidence for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. No one's trying to contact us, as far as we can tell, and we are listening and we're watching, we're watching with our telescopes. Not everyone, but there are some astronomers that do this as their, as their science. And so far, in 50 years, we've found nothing. As I look at the preliminary report uh, now, Professor, it talks about these unexplained aerial objects, UAOs, that displayed no visible propulsion, that use technology beyond the known capabilities of the U.S. or its adversaries. This is a senior U.S. official describing uh, this new report and said some of those could require some scientific advances on our part to allow us to better understand what it is that we are observing. With that said, does this usher in a new age of exploration, of scientific investigation into this? Well, first of all, I can't verify what that unnamed official said. I mean, there are also unnamed officials that said that we'd use psychic phenomenon to attack our enemies. I mean, there, you'll get crazy things coming out of the government, too, if it, people are unnamed. Indeed. But no, th- this, is, this is going to be a new era in that if we are provided videos with numbers, with radar numbers, the angles, speeds, and so forth, then we can understand a little bit more about these phenomena. I want to point out again that, that what is seen in these, these films is still unresolved. You can barely see what the thing is. And that's the one, another frustration I have is every video that I see, you actually can't see the thing. It's almost just a point of light, yes. which is kind of suspicious that I mean, sooner or later we should have a clear image of one, but we don't yet. And I don't understand why, unless much of these unidentified objects really are spurious. I know, Professor, this is an obsession for many people around the world, the great unknown. But with regard to governments uh, getting involved in this, are, are other countries investigating this, and are other governments more public uh, with the public than ours? Yes and no. There are, there are, for instance, the country of Chile released a video recently of, of what they thought was a UFO. It turned out that I don't recall what it was, but someone explained it as a very simple fashion. But yeah, other countries, when they have some information, they'll release it. Um, I can't, but I don't know exactly what's going on in the intelligence organizations of other countries. Um, but yeah, in, but also there are just normal people that take images of the sky, and they're amateur astronomers. They're looking at the sky all the time at night, and rarely see any of these videos from amateur astronomers or photographs. It's always from people who are not in the field. But that also makes me suspicious that that many, many of the reports that people think are solid UFOs that can't be explained, that defy the laws of physics, really are, are, are errors or made up, or in some cases people just want to get on radio or television, and so they'll say things to be able to get on radio and television if something happened to them. Um, 
So I can't speak for other, but for other other countries, but certainly, I think that at this point it's clear that there's information that our government and our military is interested in. That doesn't mean it has anything to do with aliens. Doesn't even mean it's real. But there's now information they can actually use to study this phenomenon. Does all this make you look up to the sky a little more often at night, Professor? No, I'm always looking up the sky. <laughs> that's, that's part of my job. Professor Nicholas Sunset from Texas A&M. lot to keep in mind as you look up to the stars this weekend. Just look closely. Could be Richard Branson. Or is that Jeff Bezos? We'll meet you back here Monday for the next Bloomberg Sound On. Thanks for spending part of your Friday with us and have a great weekend. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.